Fascists most often come to power through the normal electoral channels with a mass base of followers. Rarely a majority, but often a large minority. He got 11 million more fascists to support him. Anti-democratic, anti-pluralist, and in the case of America, you can't separate it from white supremacist, Christianity is a very serious threat to democracy and human rights. A system whose functioning continually regenerates the oppressive social relations of white supremacy, xenophobia, misogyny. Welcome to episode 32 of Inside Without Now, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. In today's episode, we are sharing presentations given at the virtual forum titled, Why Did 74 Million People Vote for Trump? Featuring Coco Das, Michael Cord, Chrissy Stroop, and Andy Z. The forum took place on December 8th and was hosted by RefuseFascism.org and the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show. Refuse Fascism formed in December of 2016 with this mission to build a movement of people coming from diverse perspectives united in our recognition that the Trump-Pence regime poses a catastrophic danger to humanity and the planet, and that it is our responsibility to drive them from power through nonviolent protests that grow every day until our demand is met. With the slogans, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America, this nightmare must end, the Trump-Pence regime must go, we have been bringing into the public square and the public discourse, number one, the problem, that a vicious American fascist movement took a leap into the highest offices in the most powerful country in the world through the election of Trump and Pence. And number two, the solution, a sustained nonviolent mass protest movement that would not be provoked and would not stop until our demand that the regime must go was met. Imagine thousands growing into millions in the streets of cities and towns across the country with marches, candlelight vigils and rallies made up of students, religious communities, immigrants, everyone with a heart for humanity in the streets and not backing down. Our actions would reflect our respect for all of humanity and the world we want in stark contrast to the hate and bigotry of the Trump-Pence regime. This could create a serious political crisis compelling those in power to respond to our struggle from below and concede to our demand. This is how dangerous regimes around the world have been driven out in South Korea, Egypt, Tunisia, Armenia, Puerto Rico, and Lebanon, just to name a few. Imagine, at any time in the last four years, what this could have stopped. Just as the months of righteous protest after the horrific murder of George Floyd changed the terms of debate on white supremacy and police brutality and shook people awake and caused millions to lose their adjustment to wanton and routine murders of black people, a nonviolent mass protest movement against the Trump-Pence regime would have reset the terms on what was acceptable, drawing the eyes of the world to a population that was resisting with all they had, instead of constantly adjusting to the shock and horror coming down every day. A constant barrage of outrages, overwhelmingly unopposed, has brought us to a point where 3,000 people can die in one day from COVID and even thousands are not moved to take to the streets to say no more. A sustained mass protest movement against the Trump-Pence regime might have inspired protests against fascist leaders all over the world. And with millions in the streets, it could have succeeded in delegitimizing and driving out a regime that imperils humanity and the earth itself, still because this regime is still in power. The founding call of Refuse Fascism stated, Fascism has direction and momentum. Dissent is piece by piece criminalized. The truth is bludgeoned. Group after group is demonized and targeted along a trajectory that leads to real horrors. All of this took dramatic leaps under the Trump regime. 
And history has shown that fascism must be stopped before it becomes too late. Fascism is not just a gross combination of horrific reactionary policies. It is a qualitative change in how society is governed. Fascism foments and relies on xenophobic nationalism, racism, misogyny, and the aggressive reinstitution of oppressive traditional values. Fascist mobs and threats of violence are unleashed to build the movement and consolidate power. And what is crucial to understand is that once in power, fascism essentially eliminates traditional democratic rights. No matter what the 74 million people tell themselves and others, this is what they voted for. Above all, Trump's campaign of Make America Great Again promised a return to a time when this was seen as a white, Christian, male-dominated, patriarchal country. And in some sense, 74 million people voted for Trump for the same reasons that 80 million people voted against him. This election was an existential battle for the future. Would we have a fascist government consolidating their power with the help of paramilitary secret police and other armed forces, racist vigilantes, fascist courts, and a supposed electoral mandate to bring the hammer down on black and brown people, women, LGBTQ people, immigrants, protesters, the media, scientists, Democrats, and other quote unquote enemies? Would our culture continue to degrade into one of schoolyard bullies, might makes right, and unmitigated selfishness? Or would we stop this trajectory? We succeeded in overwhelming Trump at the ballot box, not with the landslide it should have been, but with enough of a majority to make the attempted fascist coup nearly impossible. But voting alone has never been enough to stop Trump especially with a mainstream media that won't dare even utter the word fascism. And a democratic party that will not dare veer from the rule book that the fascists have torn up. Contrast Trump's tweets to liberate Michigan with the reluctance of democratic party leaders to impeach until they had no choice. When they were finally moved to impeach, they kept it within a narrow framework of the Ukraine scandal, but would not fight to enforce subpoenas and would not call their base into the streets to protest the egregious crimes the Trump regime was committing. Fascists most often come to power through the normal electoral channels with a mass base of followers, rarely a majority, but often a large minority. The Nazi party never won a free election, but through the normal workings of the German system, Hitler was appointed chancellor in January of 1933. And with his hands on the levers of power, he was able to win the obedience, complicity, and outright allegiance of the German people through propaganda and terror. On their rise to power, the Nazis suffered defeats and setbacks, but they continued to take over the streets and airwaves until they seized power. And then they went on to ban political parties, criminalize dissent, unleash legal and extra-legal violence, and change the laws until they could not be stopped without tremendous sacrifice. Trump did not win the popular vote in 2016 either, but he was able to win the election through an institution created to uphold slavery, the Electoral College. As fascists seize and consolidate power, if the people who recognize the danger fail to take a clear moral and political stand that overwhelms the fascist movement in the public square and in the public discourse, the unthinkable can quickly become the new normal. Trump's unhinged conspiracy theories about a stolen election is laying the groundwork to give this fascist movement the fodder it needs to mobilize a passionate, violent base, to seize power wherever it can, and to reseize the White House. Fascists can and have come back from, from defeat, and when they do, they are more prepared, determined, and vindictive. Tonight, we are going to talk about this large minority of Trump voters shaping this country. But I urge all of you watching to hold in your minds and hearts the great majority, the voters who rejected Trump, of people who cannot vote but live nonetheless in the crosshairs of this regime, and the people of the world. 
the seven billion on this planet whose futures are tied up with ours and to whom the people living in this, the most powerful country in the world, have a special responsibility. Earlier this fall, Andy Z and I co-authored a pledge to the people of the world. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America, which appeared as a full-page ad in the New York Times the Monday after Biden's win was announced in the media. And it was signed by many people of prominence, including Cornel West, Noam Chomsky, Lily Wachowski, Arturo O'Farrell, Jody Sweeten, Alyssa Milano, uh, and many others, including our guests here tonight. And before we hear the rest of our presenters, we are going to play a video of the pledge read by some of the signers. The moral and political stand a people must take to defeat fascism is embodied in this pledge. As long as this fascist danger looms through a regime in the White House or in exile with 74 million followers, we must continue to build our numbers, our unity, and our resolve into a mighty nonviolent force that can rise up and drive this fascism out of government and society. After this broadcast, I encourage you all to sign and spread this pledge, which you can find at refusefascism.org not just as a statement of where you stand, but as a commitment to remain vigilant, to organize, to stay in the streets, and to not stop until this American fascism is brought to a halt. I want to thank you all for tuning in to this critical discussion. Let's begin. of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. The Trump-Pence regime must go. We pledge that we will speak, we will stand, we will shout and march together every day to stop a regime that imperils the people of the world and the earth itself. We will take to the streets day after day and call forth others. We demand Trump-Pence out now. We will not stop until they're gone. We do not comply with the regime putting targets on the backs of black, brown, and indigenous people, denying women rights and control of their own bodies, forcing LGBTQ people back into the closet. We do not accept a society ruled by hate and bigotry, ignorance and brutality, demeaning and cursing other people's countries and threatening them with destruction. There can be no more children torn from parents and locked in cages. No more fire and fury from the mouth of a demented bully with his finger on the nuclear trigger. No more mass COVID death from science-hating lunacy. No more law and order of official terror by bullets, batons, and tear gas. No longer can we live with howling mobs resurrecting Jim Crow, fascist thugs attacking our protests. The right to vote stolen by defenders of the Confederacy. We will not worship the flag or accept the theocracy. We will not become collaborators on a march to a racist genocide. We will not hand the future to scorchers of the planet. Four more years, four more months, and it could be too late. Too late to change the course of history as the Trump regime sabotages the election and drags humanity to the very edge of extinction itself. Here and now, we pledge to unite in our millions, rising together in nonviolent resistance to stop a great horror. We pledge to stay in the streets, overcoming fear and uncertainty until this American fascism is brought to a halt. We pledge our determination to prevail over a regime that imperils the people of the world and the earth itself. In the name of humanity,
Welcome back. You're watching the second in a series of three forums. This one is called Why Did 74 Million People Vote for Trump? And right now, I'm very excited. We're going to hear from Michael Cord, who is an attorney and a columnist for the Philly Tribune and host of WURD's radio courtroom. And Michael is going to speak for a few minutes, about 10 minutes, and then we're going to hear from Chrissy Stroop and from Andy Z. And then we're going to open it up for discussion. Welcome, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you for that introduction. And I'm certainly going to stick to my 10 minutes. You introduced me correctly as an attorney, but I always like to clarify that by saying that I am not an attorney who goes to court to get justice because there's very little there. I'm an attorney who goes to court to expose the injustice because there's a lot there. And I always have to say that because I got to tell you, I don't really like most lawyers, to be quite honest. I'm introduced as what I want to kind of separate myself from that. For me, being a lawyer is a means to an end. I'll never forget when I was in law school, I felt like a soldier behind enemy lines. Like, wow, this system let me find out their secrets. What do you think I'm going to do with this? Become rich and famous? No, I'm going to use their system to destroy their system. Other thing I want to say before I um, get into my 10 minute presentation is that I always like to introduce myself as the angriest black man in America. And I take that from James Baldwin, who said to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. And you can't understand America as a black person without being enraged. But for me, that rage has to be productive. It has to be constructive. It has to hit the enemy where it hurts the most. And that's why I do what I do. Let me start out by saying when we talk about what's going on, and, and I try to avoid his name, so I'm going to say either dump or I'm going to say drunk, but I'm not going to say his name. When we talk about him, the line from the classic film, The Fly, always comes to mind, which is be afraid, be very afraid. But I add to that and then resist. You know, when we talk about fascism, many people think that it's hyperbole. They think it's something way back in the ancient past, but it's really not that long ago. I mean, when we look at where America is in 2020, you can go back and say that's where Italy was before 1922. You could say that's where Germany was before 1933. And if you want, you can make the argument that that's where Spain was before 1938. So my point is that this is a serious time in America right now. And I can't overstate that, you know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we all need to be running out in the street and pulling our hair out like this shit is really happening. It's like it's really happening that this guy lost and he might not leave. And he's telling people pretty much in coded language to get guns and just destroy America in the interest of promoting fascism. And again, that's not hyperbole. You know, when we look at the people who support him, the 74 million, and that 74 million is frightening, but to me what's even more frightening is that he got 63 million in 2016. He got 11, million more fascists to support him. That's a frightening concept. And I'd love to think I'm a student of history and politics. I would have bet you a million dollars to a dime that he was going to be lucky to get 40 million. And I think I'm woke. I got to tell you, I felt like kicking my own ass. Like you fell for it. You really thought that America is what it claims to be and Americans are what they claim to be. And they're going to see that this guy is a monster. They're going to see that he's a moron. They're going to see that he's an idiot and a thief and a con man and a grifter. And he'd be lucky to get 40 million. I do write for the Philadelphia Tribune, as you indicated. And after he won, I wrote that you can't really look at him and say he's an aberration. He, he's America. I mean, you know, there's a trickery of the Electoral College, but he shouldn't have even been in the game to use the Electoral College. Another thing I'd like to say very quickly, and I'm going to stick to my tennis, is that, you know, where we are in America and where we are in connection with 74 million Americans is absolutely frightening. And those 74 are absolutely frightening. I mean, 
they want a moron to be a permanent dictator. That's what they want. They want to go back to the Jim Crow era. They want to disenfranchise Americans. They want to go back to the anti-science era of the Dark Ages. They want to go back to or create the Handmaid's Tale. And again, I love to use the word hyperbole because when I say stuff like that, people should think that I'm exaggerating. But it's real. If you don't believe me, let's have a referendum. And only those 74 million are permitted to vote. And you ask them, do you want this guy to be the dictator for life? All of them, or at least 99% of them would say yes. Ask them if certain a certain segment of society should be disenfranchised. Many of them would say yes, the majority. Ask them if we should go back to the Jim Crow era. Many of them, the majority would say yes. Ask them if they want The Handmaid's Tale to be a documentary instead of a fantasy. And they would say yes, so it's not hyperbole. We're here to discuss why did 74 million Americans vote for Trump? And for me, it's because Trump is America and America is Trump. He's not an aberration. And those 75 million are proof of that. You know, I know that the other folks on the panel are going to talk about fascism and what it means. But in terms of my definition, when I talk about fascism, I'm talking about a violent system. I'm talking about an ultranationalist system. I'm talking about an authoritarian system. I'm talking about a right wing system. I'm talking about a system that has a cultist blind allegiance. And I have a, I'm talking about a system that wallows in nostalgic societal rebirth. So you take all those things together and that's fascism. And that's what we have here. That's why I say it's not an aberration. And again, I'm not really that naive. I was fooled in 2016. I didn't think it was going to happen, but it did happen. But I always knew about what I called America's creeping fascism or creepy fascism. It's always been there. As a black man, I'm embarrassed to say that President Barack Obama didn't do all that a black man should do to undercut what this system stands for. And it, it's really, it's awkward and difficult and embarrassing for me to say anything negative about him while I'm also saying negative things about Trump because they're polar opposites. But that doesn't mean that American presidents, even the quote unquote good ones, didn't stumble into or give a wink and a nod to at least creeping fascism. The fact that Barack Obama in 2012 signed the National Defense Authorization Act is indefensible. And when I try to debate people about the merits of a Barack Obama, I have to say, well, yeah, I think I'm a great defense attorney, but I can't defend that. I mean, you can't sign a law, in this case, the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, and you know it. You know it talks about indefinite detention, not just of quote unquote foreign terrorists, but domestic Americans. That's what that law allows. It also allows rendition. So if we can't torture here in America, we'll send them someplace where it can be. You would think that that's something that wouldn't be considered by our quote unquote best president, but it's not so much the presidents. It's more so the system that we have to be concerned about. Um, but don't get me wrong, there's some egregious monsters in that system. I mean, I never thought, and again, I got I got to admit that I'm embarrassed about being as naive as I was because I never thought that in my lifetime a president would unleash a secret, heavily armed, camouflaged federal paramilitary force in public on peaceful protesters, throw them into a an unmarked van, take them to an undisclosed location, and then decide we're gonna let him go. That happened. That happened in July of 2020. And the fact that that happened, that's why for me, when we have these discussions that we're having, if nothing else, I hope it forces people to realize how serious this stuff is. This is not some a situation where some intellectuals and scholars and academics are talking about what could happen. This is happening by a man who was endorsed by the KKK, by a man who talked about Nazis being very nice people, 
by men who not only did what he did in Portland, but talked about taking it to Philadelphia, where I am, and Detroit, and Chicago, and all over the place. Frightening, frightening concept. But let me wrap it up in my final three minutes, I believe, by saying this. When we talk about um, America, and I started out by saying that as horrific as Trump is, and he is horrific, and anybody would be better than him. Anybody would be better than him as president um, because he just unleashes his brand of fascism. So don't get me wrong. I'm appreciative of the fact that he lost, but the battle's not over. I appreciate the fact that he lost, but we got to understand that America, and not just those 74 million, but America itself, let me break it down in two minutes. Let's start in 1492, the beginning of America before America even began. So on the first day, even I'd like to call it pre-America, 1492, you see what happened there. We all know that history. No need to talk about it. Fast forward to 1619, pre-America, basically British colonial America, enslaving people like me. That's America. Then we fast forward to 1704, the beginning of today's municipal police departments, because it was in 1704 with the colony of, Cal of Carolina that the slave patrols began. And how did that begin? With white men aged 21 years and older being deputized to basically beat the hell out of and control black people. And from that in 1704, morphed into municipal police departments we have today. Fast forward to 1776, we got 56 white male property owners signing this declaration and 27 of them were involved in the slave trade. Fast forward to 1789, we get to the founding document of this country, the United States Constitution. Well, how could that fundamental doc law of the land, that document, the U.S. Constitution, look at black folks as subhuman, a fraction, three-fifths? How could that Constitution say, hey, we know slavery is bad, but we're going to allow the importation of black folks for another 20 years. We're not going to end slavery in 20 years. We're just gonna stop bringing in Africans. That's written down in the fundamental law of the land. Then there's the runaway, runaway return clause saying that, hey, if you're in a free state or free territory or free colony, and well, if you escape to a free territory or a free colony or a free state from a slave state or slave territory, that that free area based on the constitution, must send you back into slavery. That's written down. And then we got the electoral college and so many other things. Again, 1789. Fast forward to 1790, right here in Philadelphia. George Washington enslaved 316 black men, women, and children in Virginia. And then in 1790 comes to Philadelphia where America's first White House stood and illegally held nine black men, women, and children. That's the, the God of America, George Washington in 1790. Fast forward to Dred Scott, 1857. People will be shocked to know that, that the Dred Scott decision of 1857 has never been judicially overturned. Yes, legislatively through the 13th and 14th and 15th, but there's no court that ever overturned it. And here's the proof. Remember I said Dred Scott, 1857. In 2016, the Solicitor General, the top lawyer of the state of Kansas, cited the Dred Scott decision in his legal brief to violate the rights of women. Think about that. The top lawyer in the state of Kansas cited the Dred Scott decision in his brief to support his argument. And there was such a backlash that what they did then was they then filed a petition with the court to say, hey, that brief we submitted earlier, our bad, take that out. But that law, the, that lawyer who wrote that was a great lawyer because he found a Supreme Court decision, in this case, 1857, that supported his argument. And that supports my argument about America. How come no Supreme Court has ever overturned Dred Scott? And why is it that a lawyer in 2016 could cite that case in his legal argument? That's 2016. Very quickly, we've got 2013 in the uh, Shelby County versus Holder, the Attorney General under Obama. That case in 2013 basically gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So we look at American history, we look at Trump, we say that they're part and parcel of the same thing, but he is a monster who must be put back in a cage. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. That was that was such an important history. I think it's important for, 
for people watching to know, many of you probably do know this, but Hitler and the Nazi party actually looked at American mis anti-miscegenation -mis laws um, and Jim Crow as a model for their uh, Nuremberg laws against Jewish people. And they even found some of those to be too harsh. So, you know, this, this point of, I think, Michael, you really broke down this myth that fascism cannot happen here. In some ways, in some ways it was born here. Um, so thank you very much, Michael. And next we're going to hear from Chrissy Stroop, a writer and ex-evangelical and co-editor of Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. How are you doing tonight, Chrissy? Not bad. Thanks, Coco. Well, we're really Great glad you here. could join us. We're looking forward to hearing your presentation and, and to discussing this with you. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, I liked what Michael said about hyperbole, because if you are an ex-evangelical, you know, you're often accused of, of hyperbole when you describe simply your own upbringing to people who have no direct lived experience of white evangelical or conservative white Christian subculture uh, of what it's like. They simply can't sort of fathom it. And I kind of can relate to um, what he said about feeling like a, like a spy behind enemy lines in law school as well, simply as someone who grew up in the Christian right. I like to call myself a child of the culture wars. And, you know, now I've essentially switched sides in the culture wars, right? So I, I learned everything about their, what their real values are and, and what they do because I was indoctrinated in it. I spent the last several years thinking a lot about the connections between fundamentalist religion and particularly Christianity, which of course has long since been hegemonic in the West. So when we think about you know power in Western context, we have to think about Christianity, but we also have to think about who's Christianity because you know white supremacist Christianity that came came from Europe and developed in the United States. We have to contrast that with liberation theology constructed by African Americans and, and Latin Americans and people of color who find a liberationist message in, in the Bible. So, you know, I grew up with this bad kind of Christianity, toxic authoritarian Christianity. And um, I've come to conclude in recent years that fundamentalism is can, can be looked at as fascism in microcosm or on the margins. You have lots of mechanisms of social discipline in play, intense control of uh, a population. So fundamentalist religions construct what uh, scholars have dubbed enclave cultures. So American evangelical subculture, for example, has uh, a lot of its own institutions, its own information ecosystem. I like to say we were doing alternative facts before it was cool because, you know, I, um, I grew up being sent to hard right-wing, mostly white Christian schools. The Christian school that I graduated from in Indianapolis is called Heritage Christian School. And yeah, that's a, that's a code word. Mascot is the Eagles. We grew up you know, very much with Christian nationalism being the norm of our lived experience. In that school, every day, we said three pledges. So not just the, the pledge to the American flag, which I think is, you know, maybe not necessarily fully fascist, but creepy and fascist-ish enough, right? But then we would also say the pledge to the Christian flag, which ends with Jesus coming to provide, this, is a, this part's a direct quote, life and liberty for all who believe. So not for all, but for all who believe. It's a directly anti-pluralist pledge. And then we said a pledge to the Bible. So three pledges to start your day off. You know, meanwhile, in school assemblies and also in the classroom, we're being told that liberals are these horrible, godless people out there who are killing babies, and it's our job to stop them. And they start telling you this five, six years old. I mean, really, as soon as you're uh, able to listen in a kind of church or school environment. And my entire social world as a small child was people from Christian school and, and people from church. That was pretty much it. So you're constantly in this environment where everyone is basically the same as you. And you're being told that people outside of that environment are, are dangerous. They are collectively referred to as something called the world. The world is a bad place. It says in the Bible, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. The world is under Satan's dominion. Eventually you need to get out there and try to convert people. You, you, have, to, you have to realize that these are, are outsiders, they're enemies, they are others. And these people include, of course, 
liberals, they include you know, communists, Marxists. And by the way, you look into the history of the Christian right in the era of the civil rights movement, and you will find many right-wing Christian preachers like Jerry Falwell accusing Martin Luther King of communism. I mean, of course, he was also spied on by the FBI, but you know, it's, it's, it's part of the Christian rights legacy. You actually kind of look back to the, to the Cold War is, is where a lot of the current iteration of the Christian right that really crystallized with the moral majority in the 1970s has its roots. And it was not in the early 70s about abortion at all. It was, it was about the religious freedom, to use the term, that they continued to weaponize in the courts to try to actually carve out, you know, legally enshrine religious privilege, but religious freedom to discriminate against African-Americans, right? They didn't want to have to uh, admit African-Americans to Christian schools and colleges and, and so forth. That became, of course, more impolitic for white evangelicals who wanted to be regarded as respectable, and many do, by the late 1970s. And so rallying around abortion, which was pretty much the, uh, the brainchild of Paul Weyrich working with Jerry Falwell and some others, became a sort of proxy for the white supremacism that the Christian rights voting patterns still uphold today. They, of course, most of them, you ask them, are, are you a racist? Are you a white supremacist? They will say no. But, you know, a bunch of Southern Baptist seminaries just released a statement denouncing critical race theory as against the Bible. So uh, it's, it's, it's pretty clear where they stand. So you want to talk about the, these Trump voters and the theocratic aspects of that. You want to talk about it by the numbers. Well, so that 74 million, 40% of them were white evangelicals, uh, white evangelical Protestants who have been through Trump's entire four years and you know even before once he became the candidate in the 2016 primaries, the, the single most Trumpist demographic in America. White evangelicals are the big outliers on, on everything from their views on marriage equality to uh, the Trump regime's Muslim ban. You know, they're simply more conservative if you want to call it that, more fascist, I suppose I would say, than, than any other group. And there's a lot of physical abuse and sexual abuse that goes on in these communities as happens in any kind of authoritarian climate where certain hierarchies, social hierarchies are enforced, in this case, white supremacist patriarchy. But there's also a lot of emotional manipulation that, that goes on in these communities. And again, you are raised on disinformation. So, and, that, and accepting that disinformation becomes kind of the, the calling card of your identity. So if you question any part of it, your loyalty is questioned. If you actually break with your family or this wider you know, conservative Christian community on any major political issue, I mean, you, you might lose your entire social support network. At the very least, people will start questioning your salvation and uh, you know, you'll start to lose social standing in the community. So a lot of people who maybe uh, are, well, I, I would argue that everyone is harmed by this system, but of course it places white men, white male leaders on top. But a lot of white women are, are willing to go along, to get along here for proximity to power. And it sometimes can be some, some of the worst enforcers, particularly of gender norms. And, and unless there is really something about you, your identity, your personality, that makes you start to question this, I think for most people it's just, easier to stay. Certainly the indoctrination that comes from your earliest years. I mean, I, I remember as a very small child, I think I was about four when my dad prayed through the prayer of salvation with me, you know, and I was told that if I didn't accept Jesus into my heart, I would go to hell and hell is a literal place where you are tortured and burned forever. It's really scary. And I remember being up some nights crying, thinking, did I do it right? Am I really saved? Am I going to hell? You know, so they start instilling this fear in you from day one, really, of your life, and then telling you that to be safe, you have to do everything that our community says, you know, and, and, and don't look too closely at what's going on outside there because you're, that's in from the devil. Your doubts are maybe literally, you know, the work of demons infiltrating your mind. You cannot trust yourself. You're basically taught to gaslight yourself. So these are the kind of people that we're dealing with. Now, I, I have to admit that I too was kind of taken in toward the end of the election by a lot of the optimism that was going around in democratic circles about a, a big blue wave. And uh, I hoped at least that that was going to prove 
correct. But I'm not so surprised at the end of the day that Trump's raw numbers in terms of the vote are actually higher than they than they were in 2016, because I've been, you know, I'm someone who helps to monitor the, the Christian right. And I publish commentary and policy research sometimes for the think tank political research associates, for example. I, I knew that the Christian right was vowing to step up its ground game, and they've got um, a hell of a lot of money, you know, to to spend on this sort of thing. So it was really a question of who was going to outvote whom in this election with high turnout on, on both sides. But the Christian right certainly followed through on its ground game. And I think another factor that it's important to consider is that churches have started using third-party apps, literally designed by the same people uh, from Cambridge Analytica and their friends at the Council for National Policy to micro-target people for potential converts. But then the people who make these apps are very much conscious of how this will be used to mobilize Christians, mobilize Christians through churches for the political right. We were doing this back in the day, you know, with uh, older methods. So my Christian school sent high school juniors and seniors on, uh, I suppose you would call them field trips, but it seems awkward to call them that, to sort of tea party before the tea party type conventions. This, this group in Indiana was called Citizens Concerned for the Constitution. It has since been rebranded as Advance America, which makes it sound like a payday loan company. But uh, it, it bills itself on its website as America's or Indiana's, sorry, Indiana's premier pro-family, pro-homeschooling, pro-Christian schools organization. So we went to their conventions, we gathered their voter guides, and then on school time, students were, you know, sent uh, out of class to put stuff these, stuff these voter guides basically in envelopes and direct mail them out to people affiliated with our school or on our address list. Well, uh, now they're using digital manipulation through the same thing. You, you go to a church, uh, you might sign in the computer, give them information about yourself. You might, you know, register your kids in their computer system so that uh, supposedly for security, so that you make sure you pick them up from Sunday school after the service is over or whatever. But these apps are collecting your data. They're not protecting it. And then it's being gathered and used by Council for National Policy and Republican operatives uh, with the full knowledge of the, the, uh, the Christians who create some of these programs that churches use. Some pastors don't necessarily know their churches are being manipulated this way, but it's actually quite a brilliant strategy because these white evangelical churches have always been bastions of, of white supremacism. And uh, to be sure, majorities of all white Christian demographics voted for Trump. So also a majority of white Catholics, a majority of white mainline Protestants, but again, not in the same numbers as evangelicals, but it, it is mostly traditionalist Catholics, some mainliners, and then also Mormons who kind of make up the rest of that Christian right base that Trump has actually shown that he values at least their loyalty throughout um, his, his four years because he's pursued the Christian rights agenda of, you know, trying to overturn Roe v. Wade, trying to ban abortion, trying to uh, carve out more and more religious exemptions, trying to take away access to health care and rights for trans and, and gay individuals. And of course, moving our embassy, the U.S. embassy in Israel from tele secular Tel Aviv to Jerusalem with all of its poignant religious symbolism to, you know, all the three major Abrahamic religions. That's been a goal of the Christian right for a long time, or at least of evangelicals, because of their belief that it's necessary for their end times prophecies to, to play out. Even George W. Bush would never have moved our embassy to Jerusalem because it's an extremely destabilizing, frankly stupid, foreign policy move. Trump did it because he has been rewarding his most loyal base. And so some of the last things I want to say, I suppose my time is probably up, but before I turn it over, is that, you know, we often hear that Trump has duped these poor marks. He's using, he's using Christians. He's using evangelicals. How could they support him? This is just entirely the wrong framing. They've been using Trump this entire time more than he's using them. Many of them, you know, know he's a repulsive person and frankly not very smart, though they'll never say it out, out loud where the public can hear. Some of them don't like him, but they like what he does. They, they gave him a chance and he literally fulfilled their entire wish list. So just to sort of sum up, I guess I would say that when we talk about fighting fascism, you know, we have to realize that we are dealing 
with not fake Christianity, or I've heard some commentators say, oh, they say that Trump's main support group is white evangelicals, but I don't think they're really evangelicals. I don't think they go to church. You know, even according to the data that we have, that just makes no sense. But what it is, is, is a reflection of the de facto uh, Christian state of the American public sphere, where mainstream media outlets uh, and many commentators, many liberals simply do not want to countenance that Christianity is not always or inherently benign. It can be liberationist, as in the black church, but it can also, you know, side with imperial power. The Bible is multivalent enough to serve both of, of these purposes. And it has been used to uphold imperial power since Roman times, since the time of Constantine. And yet again, if you want to look at the way that this is similar to abusers, narcissists, or a sort of more, more secular fascism, this kind of Christianity cultivates majoritarian grievance, right? So they're always being persecuted. They're always being treated unfairly. And uh, no, they're not going to go gently into that good night now that Trump has been defeated in this election. In fact, many prominent evangelical voices are uh, insisting that Trump actually won the election, selling the voter fraud lie, pushing all kinds of disinformation. So yeah, anti-democratic, anti-pluralist, and in the case of America, you can't separate it from white supremacist Christianity is a very serious threat to democracy and human rights. Hierarchical institutional churches have you know, generally tended to uphold fascism. I mean, just look at the Vatican during World War II. And again, this is something that polite people don't like to say, but most of the rank and file Nazis were Christians. We like to associate the Nazis with the occult because I think it helps to other them more and make them seem less like us. But, you know, most theologians, Protestant and Catholic, backed Hitler's regime. And uh, most white Christians in America backed Trump's regime. We have to face that. And I think that if we, want to if we want to dismantle this system, then we have to include the Christian supremacism there and embrace pluralism. So not, you know, go all in for, you know, French Revolution style anti-clericalism. Let's not chop the heads off of bishops or anything. And certainly let's not alienate the black church or other believers of different confessions who, you know, share values with secular Americans like uh, myself. I'm an atheist at this point because I had quite enough of Christianity growing up the way I did and then, you know, having to figure out why I always felt different in figuring out that I'm a trans woman. But, you know, what we need is, is coalitions of secular people and, and believers around shared values rather than shared beliefs. At the same time, we cannot sidestep that some very large branches of Christianity that we need to understand as such are very harmful to the cause of democracy and human rights. Chrissy, thank you so much. That was incredibly informative. And I've been following you on Twitter for a while, so I've learned a lot from your tweets, but I, I really I learned a lot here tonight. And I think for our listeners, a lot of people just don't know, you know how organized and how passionate the space is. And I think your point about how we should not underestimate them and that the, it's not that Trump is using them, but they have used Trump to advance this agenda. And the claim that he's doing God's will, right? So for them, it really right. is good versus evil. Democrats are literally, you know, influenced by demons, <laughs> real demons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that rhetoric is really shocking, um, certainly to me. Well, next we're going to hear from Andy. A Andy Z is uh, the host of the Revolution Nothing Less show and spokesperson for Revolution Books. Welcome, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Uh, this was so informative. Just want to thank all three of you for your presentations. It made me think, Jesus, I wish we, excuse me for saying Jesus, but I, it made me wish that we could have, that we could spend the whole night talking. There are so many things that both of you raised, but why don't I get down to my presentation on the same question. I said to Coco before we started, whose bright idea was it to it on this question? It was a pretty hard question to get to, but let's go. Okay, so why did 74 million people vote for an open racist, toxic male supremacist, anti-Semitic, stunted person lacking any capacity for empathy who caged and separated children from their parents without remorse, a pathological liar and narcissist who consistently and brazenly opposes science and rational thought at the cost of 300,000 lives disproportionately people of color? 
Why did 74 million vote to re-elect such a person to lead through a Catholic and the evangelical Christian fascist movement, a pandemic, a resulting economic crisis, an existential ecological crisis backed by enormous scientific evidence of climate change imperiling the earth with hundreds of millions of people besieged every day by catastrophic storm, fire, drought, leading to mass migrations and to the extinction of many species, including threatening our own. Why did 74 million people vote for a regime that is packed with Christian fascists who care nothing for the future because they believe in end times where only they will be raptured to heaven? Biblical literalists, theocrats whose core beliefs demand the subordination of women and the demonization, if not the elimination, of differently gendered people. Why indeed would 74 million people wave their MAGA flags and vote for a demonstrably psychopathic leader who said if we have nuclear weapons, why can't we use them and vote to keep his finger on the nuclear trigger, a vengeful bully who reportedly two weeks ago had to be talked out of attacking Iran, at least for now. And why would 74 million people vote for someone who repeatedly showed themselves in the wake of the murder of George Floyd to be a vicious white supremacist, supremacist and genocidal racist? The simple and basic answer is because they agree with him. Ron Reagan, the liberal son of President Reagan, whose presidency began this reactionary momentum that has built over the past 40 years towards the fascist regime of Trump and Pence, said that people follow Trump because he hates the same people that they do. I hear the objection. All 74 million people are racist? Sure, there are those who say they're not. Trump even says that he's the least racist person. Bullshit. To vote for Trump means that you're not just okay with but you're willing to support, to collaborate with, and put in power for a second term a vengeful, open racist you knowingly collaborate with concentration camps and a genocidal program against immigrants and refugees, and that's not the tenth of it. It doesn't fucking matter if people say their reason for voting for Trump is because they think he is good for their money, or they identify with his outrageously sticking it to the elites. Plenty of good Germans in the 1930s, including liberals and progressives, thought they could ignore the ugly parts of Hitler and use him to get the policies they wanted. They were not just wrong, but they, in effect, became Nazis at the horrific cost of the tens of millions of lives. But look, to answer the questions of why and what do we do about the 74 million, we must go deeper and pull the historical lens back and apply a scientific method and approach to the underlying structures and dynamics that have given rise to what aspires to be a second coming of the Confederacy. And I'm going to be drawing a lot of this analysis from the work of the revolutionary thinker and leader, Bob Avakian, BA, who has done some deep scientific study of the development of this American fascism as part of analyzing the necessity the basis and the strategy for an actual revolution to overthrow the capitalist imperialist system that has white supremacy and patriarchy woven into its fabric to bring it to being a new socialist republic in North America, a radically different and far better system to put humanity on the road to real emancipation. That's why I follow by Bob Avakian, and that's why you should too. Donald Trump did not create these divisions. The oppression of black people began with the first slave ship to the U.S. shore in 1619. Slavery was written into the U.S. Constitution. It took on new horrors with the betrayal and reversal of Reconstruction with its violent apartheid that permeated every sphere of black people's lives under Jim Crow and has continued in new forms with a viciousness that seeps into and permeates every metric of the masses of black people's lives today. Women, from the founding of this country through the mad men of the 1950s and much of the 1960s, were kept under the thumb of men, with almost no control over their own bodies, their own destinies, even their very lives. And from the theft of the native people's lands down to today, the U.S. has marauded over all over the world, plundering and slaughtering. All of this is the America that Trump wants to go back to, to make America great again. And since the Civil War, there has been a section of white America, mainly located in the South, but not only, that has created a deadly myth of a lost noble cause, a way of life where people knew their place. 
Through two world wars and a depression, this myth has persisted and the oppression of the masses of people continued in new and ever more vicious and perverted forms. Then comes the 1960s. The civil rights movement developed into a powerful black liberation movement with society shaking uprisings in ghettos of over 200 cities. Radical and revolutionary forces like Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party emerged to shake the foundations of people's thinking and awaken the aspiration towards a radically better and different world. A powerful anti-war movement deeply questioned the whole framework of we're the good guys that lies at the heart of American exceptionalism. And responding to all this, and to the profound changes that were taking place in the underlying economy, a youth counterculture arose. Women and gay people then rose up to question the whole foundation of society and of gender itself. One section of the ruling class, represented by the Democrats, adopted a policy of concession and inclusion on the basis of this same capitalist and imperialist oppressive economic system that in all these different forms of oppression were tightly tied into in order to bring a section of these rebelling forces back into the system. Another section of the ruling class, represented by a section of the Republican Party, went to work and built a movement within a section of the fundamentalist Catholic and evangelical churches for over the last 40 years. They said no. These changes are too much, too destabilizing to cohere this country and to maintain the U.S. empire. And the decades since have accelerated a fast-paced, globalized imperialism, creating a vast network of sweatshops that has moved manufacturing jobs out of the U.S. And, or into low-wage areas, hollowing out people's lives and making them susceptible to appeals to fortify their white privilege and regain the status they once had. These are the foot soldiers of both the Christian fascist and militia movements, the shouters who fill the quasi-lynch mob rallies of Donald Trump. This same globalization through which the U.S. exploits people internationally has rendered whole populations of black people, especially the youth, superfluous, condemning them to a life of hustling and mass incarceration and terror at the hands of the police. So too with immigrants driven from their homelands due to the imperialist destruction of the economies of their countries, along with the first world-fueled climate change that has driven billions of people into vast mass shantytown slums and tens of millions into being refugees. Trump has not only amplified I'm sorry, Trump has not only amplified all of these pre-existing conditions, this pre-existing oppression and these sharp divides, but he's normalized this with an unabashed, vicious racism, misogyny, and xenophobia. Trump has cohered a diverse and reactionary fascist movements that predated his regime into a force that has now tasted power and is now embedded in the key institutions, including the courts up to the Supreme Court, and that lives and seethes in its own conspiracy-laden universe of victimization that will propel an aggrieved revanchism. This is a movement that is not going away. There cannot be going back to an imagined past. It's not possible and it's not desirable. We need to go forward. We need to continue, as Coco said earlier, to be vigilant. And now with the electoral votes certified for Biden and assuming that the Trump-Pence regime is out of power by January 20th, we need to continue to unite all of those who oppose injustice continuing to rally all the, quote, decent people to keep this fascist movement on the defensive. But that must not be the end of it. We got to the fascist Trump-Pence regime through the normal workings of this system, and this system is still in effect with a hardened and expanded fascist movement that runs from the highest court through powerful capitalist institutions down to the militias and an organized Christian fascist network of churches. And we will not go forward by putting our hopes and our dreams and work into the delusions of Biden or Bernie. There will be no reaching across the aisle or healing with fascists. Almost every Republic fascist in Congress has refused to even recognize Biden's victory. Overwhelmingly, the Republican fascist base believes the election was stolen, Trump won, and Biden lost. 
Bob Avakian has made the crucial point that any unity, any reconciliation with these fascists or their program can only be on the terms of the fascists. As for Bernie, or AOC, dreams of reforming capitalism is an illusion and a delusion. A system that functions by maximizing profit through competition among capitalists over who they can exploit more efficiently cannot be made to serve humanity. And just as bad, deciding now for people, for people, and just as bad for people to decide now to go back to political sleep, to just get on with your life, ignores the reality that the driving forces of this system will continue to produce the conditions that brought Trump to power in the first place. There is a tremendous struggle to be waged for the future. This is a struggle not just to prevent the return of a fascist regime, but for a radically different and far better world that is not trapped in a system whose very nature sets people against each other, competing just to survive. A system whose functioning continually regenerates the oppressive social relations of white supremacy, xenophobia, uh, misogyny, uh, discrimination against differently gendered people, and all these divisions that torment humanity. And they will continue to fuel a fascist movement. This is not just a struggle with those who rule over this system, whether Democrat or Republic fascist, Republican fascist, but it's a struggle amongst ourselves with everyone who desires a different and better future. A struggle to confront the world as it actually is, to consistently apply a scientific method and approach to all of reality, including society, over the years of Trump, there's a sense among the people who have opposed the regime that science matters, especially in the midst of the life and death stakes with the COVID pandemic. But a scientific method and approach needs to be applied to the complexity of society and its transformation. It's not okay to just believe those things that make you feel comfortable and ignore those things that discomfort and challenge you. The hour is too late for such an indulgence. And worse, it selfishly ignores the cost to people here and all around the world. There is leadership, extraordinary leadership for this great struggle in Bob Avakian and his development of the consistently and thoroughly scientific method and approach of the new communism. There's not only the means to understand the world as it actually is, but a pathway to begin to work today to bring forward the people to lead an actual revolution when winning becomes possible. This is a hard road for sure, but there is no future for humanity or for the earth we live on under this system, yet there is in the new communism a way forward to a radically new and better world. So here I make an invitation. And it is also a serious warning for, failure, for failing to even engage this new development, this new communism is a choice and it's a choice that has a cost to the future. You are saying to yourself and to the world, I'm good. Let me worry about the earth and the seven billion who live on it. But as Coco said, the fight against fascism is not over. The refuse fascism pledge to the people of the world must continue to resonate far and wide and become not only a needed political and moral compass, but an organized expression of a network ready to act with nonviolent determination to not allow fascism to grow and dominate and terrorize humanity. The next 40 plus days until Trump and Pence are gone from power continue to present real and present danger. Our vigilance matters. So in closing, I wanna to say to all those who have taken up the call from refuse fascism and to my fellow panelists who've exposed the dangers of what we face with these 74 million people voting for this Trump-Pence regime, our pledge remains, quote, to hold firm to our determination to prevail over a regime that imperils the people of the world and the earth itself and the, we closed by saying, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Watch the full forum at refusefascism.org and share it widely. You can read the transcript of Coco Das's presentation there as well. The next forum, COVID, a case study with life and death stakes, science, epistemology, conspiracy, and fascism will take place on Wednesday, December 16th at 8 p.m. So mark your calendars and RSVP and learn more at refusefascism.org. Follow Refuse Fascism on social media at Refuse Fascism. Thanks for listening to Inside Without Now. If you appreciate these forums and want to see more of them, 
donate generously today. As a listener of this show, you know now isn't a time to go back to sleep, but to stay vigilant, stay in the public square, and see this fascist regime's removal from office. See their thugs driven back from the streets and their program of hatred and bigotry massively repudiated. I'm hoping you will chip in today to help make that real. Donations now through December 6th, up to $6,000 will be matched dollar for dollar. So dig deep and give generously. Visit refusefascism.org and click the donate button or Venmo refuse-fascism, cash app refuse-fascism. Have you checked out the artists, designers, makers, Refuse Fascism auction yet? If not, be sure to do so. Support Refuse Fascism by placing the winning bid on a variety of great holiday gifts, including works of art, a cooking class, and crafts. Check the show notes for details. As always, please rate and review this show if you haven't. And subscribe for the latest. This Saturday, Refuse Fascism is mobilizing to D.C. to say, Trump, you lost. Get the hell out. We'll be holding a rally and speak out in front of the White House at Black Lives Matter Plaza, Saturday, December 12, 12 p.m. Two days before electors vote to make Biden's win official, Trump's mindless followers will rally in D.C. behind the fiction of a stolen election. At Black Lives Matter Plaza, away from their rally and in front of the White House, we will declare, stop trying to overturn the election. Stop your murderous COVID program. Stop your dangerous war moves. Stop whipping up mega fascist mobs. Trump Pence, out now. Mask up, socially distance, but show up. And if you are not able to be in DC, be sure to chip in to support the travel, expenses, and extra COVID precautions necessary. Remember, all donations through December 16th, up to $6,000 will be matched. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump Pence, out now. And with COVID cases surging, be sure to stay safe, not silent.